0: Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today.
2: Hi, I'm John McEnroe. I'm Bjorn Borg. This
1: is Martina Navratilova.
2: I'm Mats Villander. I'm Sandra Winka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray.
1: And you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. <laughs> Hello, welcome to the Tennis Podcast, brought to you in association with The Telegraph. Just moments ago, Johanna Konta won her first WTA title, beating Venus Williams in the final in Stamford. She did it the scenic route, 6-2 in the third set, and... By my reckoning, that is the biggest title won by a British woman in more than 30 years. Quite fantastic performance from Conta to defeat the great Venus Williams, who was coming back at her strong. And Catherine Whittaker and myself are here to talk it over. And many things aside as well, because Catherine Whittaker is in Toronto and just about holding your eyelids open with matchsticks jet lagged, Catherine.
2: Yeah, just, just about. Yeah, let's go, let's get this show on the road, David, or you might be presenting it alone.
1: The show's on the road. We're on air. Don't worry, we're actually on air right now. I tell you what, it's about one o'clock in the morning here in Great Britain as well, so I'm not far behind you. But anyway, Conta has kept spirits up, and as has Venus Williams, of course. I mean... Every time I see her play, I still marvel at the fact that we even get to see Venus Williams playing at 36 years of age. And I have to say, though, from 7-5, 4-1 down, double break, I thought that was going to be a pretty routine Win and I tweeted as much, Catherine. I made a, a a minor fool of myself uh, as opposed to, opposed to the uh, the normal major fool uh, by saying. And although I I stand by it. At the time, it was a pretty uncompetitive match by that stage, and and it looked as though she was on her way counter to her first W C A title, and and that is how it looked. But she wobbled quite severely, and Venus Williams came back strongly. So. To, for Conta to get it done in the end, I thought was really a, an excellent performance.
2: Yeah, well, on the subject of Venus Williams, she said in her speech, I hope to see you next year. So it uh, looks like we'll be seeing her uh, all things being well, all things being equal. But we'll be seeing a 37-year-old Venus Williams lifting our spirits in 12 months' time, which is an even more incredible thought than than the current situation. But uh yeah, I mean, to lose that double break, that was uh, those were tough times. And that's when she called her coach, not her usual coach, Estevan, onto the court. Another one of the Spanish coaches... Um, she works with in Gijón in, in Spain. She called him onto the court and that was one of my favourite on-court coaching exchanges ever, actually. Uh, he looked a little bit nervous, I thought, to be called onto the court at this very, very tense stage. I mean, she had lost... It'd been such a landslide in Venus Williams' favour since she went that double break-up and, as you say, it looked like a procession. She really, really needed to stem the tide and actually she she ended up not being able to in that set, and uh, that that exchange with her coach didn't... Well, I mean, it didn't seem to harm things. As I say, things were already going in slightly the wrong direction by that point, but it was very interesting. He was trying to tell her to keep calm, to hold her nerve, essentially suggesting that, you know, it was mental reasons why she had lost her advantage and she very very pointedly said twice is there anything tennis related uh that you can give me at this moment in time as if to say don't want any advice about staying calm you know is that response to you know when you're not calm when you're angry Sometimes the worst thing in the world is someone telling you to calm down. It was that sort of response. Um, and then she asked him several times, do I need to be braver? And there seemed to be a slight language barrier there. And she just went, oh, forget it. And, uh, and they got up, walked off to the back of the court and promptly uh, lost the set and did ever so well in light of that to come back as strongly as she did in the third set and to close it out because she went that double break up again I think Venus had at least two possibly three breakback points in that game and boy were the nerves showing there were a couple of absolute stinkers uh, from Joe Contra in that game a drop shot the like of which I play all the time and a a really no it wasn't that
1: bad it it really wasn't
2: (laughs) and a really nervy volley and she I mean her arm must have felt like lead and she did brilliantly well, and uh, I'm really happy for her. And it's so, you know, it, following her progress this week, I, I just sort of assumed with Joe Conta's new status in the world, I hadn't thought about the fact that she hadn't won a title, that won a WTA Tour title, or even reached a final. It just You just sort of think players within the top 20 have done that. And actually, I think she's the highest ranked player that hadn't, in the WTA rankings, that hadn't won a title, let alone reached a final. I suspect she was... Uh, the highest ranked player by quite some way uh, to not have reached a final. So this is a really big deal for her and, and she should be a player that's winning titles.
1: I, I think as well it's the it's the sheer speed with which she has done this that takes us all by surprise because you're quite right. I mean, she she is quite a, a, an older player to, to be winning her first title and, and obviously highly ranked now. She's going to be 14 in the world when the, the rankings are released later today. Uh, to have not won a title but if you go back 12 months she was playing ITF tournaments she was ranked outside the world's top 100 she was in that incredible winning streak that got her into the qualities of the US Open in form she ended up going and beating Muguruza and Petkovic uh, along her way and that was really the launch pad for what we're seeing now I mean she's had a bit of a wobble of late and had a, a decent run in the Eastbourne but not so many other good results on the clay and on the grass aside from that. But this was the contour of Australia. This was the contour of of the U.S. hard court season last year, and here she is now. I mean, she's going to be ninth in the in the race to Singapore. Effectively eighth, if you discount Victoria Azarenka. It is not inconceivable that she might end up in Singapore at the WTA Finals, and. On this particular surface, she looks a match for most players. I know that Stanford, although it was a premier level event, it doesn't have the strongest field in the world. But when Conta plays her best tennis, she is a match for for but a handful, I would say. I mean, if she could even give the top players a match, but she can beat the majority now. And I did find it interesting, though, that wobble she had at 4-1 in the second set, because... It it was just a reminder that no matter how many processes you try to put in place to, to keep the nerves at bay, the reality can sink in. Oh my goodness! I'm that I'm so close. I'm so close to doing something I've never done before. And we saw it yesterday, actually, in the in the semi-finals against uh, Sybil Kova who she was beating handily six four six two. She eventually won that, and yet her celebration at the end of, end of that was as though she just won a nail biting win. She she screamed, shook her fists. You can see how much it means to her, and and I think this is another significant step in her progress, just because she she's won one. That, and done something she'd never done before
2: yeah well a reminder also of just what an absurdly mental game it is you know when she was asking her coach there on the court do I need to be braver it almost you know I could I, I think it was a language a slight like language barrier why that question wasn't computing with her coach but also I mean it was a, it was a slightly ridiculous question I mean the, the, she wasn't doing anything differently she wasn't a less good tennis player than she was when she raced to the 4-1 lead. She's just got the yips a bit, and, and the mental side of things has got to her. You know, yes, she she has made some some interesting remarks and commentary about a few technical changes she's made to her game uh since that that have prompted that amazing rise up the rankings but this is marginal this is the marginal gains within the marginal gains you know it's mostly I would say the mental side of things I suspect you know those those slight tweaks she's made technically to her game have given her more confidence in it and that then feeds into greater mental strength and all the rest of it but It just makes you realise that this sport, you know, not only do you have to spend half your day on the court hitting forehands and backhands, and then the other half of the day in the gym, you also probably need to get yourself a sports psychologist, you know, as a matter of urgency, because it's just... It's, it, you can have the best forehand and backhand in the world and and it can get you nowhere because it is just such an absurdly mental game. Uh, and she obviously isn't... It doesn't come naturally to her, the mental side of things. You know, some you feel like it does. You know, Maria Sharapova, you feel like she's naturally a mental fortress. I don't feel like it comes naturally to Joe Conte. She has had to coach herself. With the help of Juan Cotto, she's had to coach herself to be mentally tough. And I find that incredible, that ability to control your emotions. I don't have that. I mean, that would be just an amazing skill for, for life, let alone uh, for a professional athletes. So I have immense respect for her for that. I think on the subject of her ranking, I mean, as you say, in real terms, in the race to Singapore, she's eighth, which would obviously qualify her. So... It's not an outside possibility now. It's very real possibility, if not, when I say, I'm going to say probability, I mean probability in marginal, marginal terms. But yeah, she, she's currently in position to qualify for Singapore. And of course, the fact that she has points to defend from the US Open doesn't have a bearing on, on the race ranking, so she doesn't need to worry about that too much. And the rest of the season is on hard courts, which I think is her favorite surface so yeah she should have her sights set on Singapore for sure
1: well that's a very good point you make because they go into Montreal now which is on paper another tournament where she could conceivably pick up points Obviously, the fact that she will go to the Olympics means that it's a very heavy schedule something has to go eventually whether or not she I mean she may play them all but you you, you just can't imagine anybody come th- coming through this stage of the season just completely unscathed really um, also a note to say that Venus Williams is is in the top ten in the world she's sixteenth in the race uh, scheduled to be not not inconceivable that she might be able to to get there as well so fantastic to see see her playing so well uh, it's just a joy every time and um and i'd say that was the, the we, we have a, a biased interest in terms of our nationality and, and the way we look at it editorially but i think it was it was the the final of a packed day really in terms of uh, of of just editorial significance there were other great matches i have to say um Gael Monfils coming through against Ivo Karlovic in the final in Washington looked like a like a fantastic final, and Ivo Karlovic, a man who'd won in Newport a week ago, just edged out by Monfils. And here we are talking about Conta winning her first title in her mid twenties. What about Monfils? I mean, this is the biggest title of his career. It's, I mean, I say it's only an ATP 500. That the reason I'm saying that is because. Monfils is is a player of such distinction in so many different ways, and he's been around for such a long time. How is that his first five hundred tournament victory? I, I just I don't understand that.
2: Yeah, no, I was absolutely staggered by that stat. Again, like with Conti, you just sort of assume, of course, he's you know he's got hundreds of those. Anyone, you know, not hundreds, but
1: should say as well about Monfils. I mean, this is probably the, the most consistent he's ever been this, this year so far. If you think of other results he's had at other tournaments, uh, he had that good run to the final in Monte Carlo. And you just wonder whether now... He's he's really starting to, to focus in and and we'll see, hopefully, from his, for his sake, the best of him. I mean, he, he also made quarterfinals at the Australian, Indian Wells, Miami. I mean, he's up to to ninth in the race. He's, he's actually ahead of Federer, who's obviously had all the injury problems. It,
2: I was absolutely gutted for him with what happened uh, in Paris uh, and him having to withdraw due to a virus because this, I felt, was his big assault on the title. You know, he changed his whole approach to tennis. As I say, I don't... He won't talk about what exactly he's doing differently, whether it's just a completely mental thing, whether it's a Joe Contest style, bringing someone new into the team, I don't know. But there is no doubt that this is a different Gaël Monfils this year. And what happened uh, earlier on in the summer was incredibly unfortunate in light of that. But if if he is pulling himself together now physically, I think with the new mental Gaël Monfils... He could be a challenger.
1: He could be. He could be. It's 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 another one of those sort of stories going under the radar a little bit that that it would be interesting to follow if he can keep it going. Other winners uh, today, and I mean it has been an extraordinary uh, week in tennis because of the Olympics. So many events are being played at the same time. We've actually had six different cities ho- hosting tennis tournaments this this weekend in the on the WTA and ATP calendars. In Borstad, Laura Sigmund, who we saw do so well in Stuttgart earlier this year, she won the title. She's always good fun to watch. Ingestad, Feliciana Lopez, talking about 30-somethings. He's in his mid-30s as well. Feliciana Lopez winning the title there. Kitzbühel, I like this one. Paolo Lorenzi won the title, having having had 13 match points in the semifinals against, uh, I think it's Gerald Meltzer, isn't it? Or Jür- Jürgen Meltzer's younger brother? I think it is, anyway. Um, and
2: I think that makes him the f- oldest ever first-time Tour title winner Lorenzi, I believe. While we're on the subject of age,
1: yeah, I mean, crikey, if I win one, Catherine, I'll tell you, all all records are off. I think I think that record's probably safe. Uh, and in Umag in Croatia, a, a place that, that I, I like very much. I went to that tournament a few times. Fabio Fanini won the title there and if he's not suited to Umag, nobody is. I, I can't imagine somebody who's more suited to it. play starts at 5.30 in the afternoon uh, because of the heat and, and they love players like uh, Fabio Fanini in that wonderful Croatian city over there. Uh, Washington also uh, hosted the women's title, as well as the men's, uh, the women's uh, tournament there. And I think, I'm trying to work out whether the matches have actually finished there. Yes, they have. Janina Wickmeyer beating Lauren Davis, 6-4, 6-2. So that just about wraps up the weekend. It has been a a cracking day of tennis uh, all over the world. And Catherine, you are already making um previews for, for for the next tournament the big atp masters 1000 tournament in toronto what's it like over there
2: it's blooming hot david is what it is it's uh, it's very very nice uh, it's my first time in toronto i of course did montreal last year the event switching between men's and women's uh each year alternating um i very much like canada um they're brilliant attitude towards tennis they really embrace it I mean yes the draw this year has been hit by the Olympics the scheduling or you know it's just a weird year isn't it Olympic years always are and it is a terrible shame that they don't have defending champion Andy Murray and they don't have Roger Federer and and they don't have Stan Wawrinka but you know they they're very uh Uh, circumspect about it I suppose and very very positive and excited about the tournament nonetheless you know some some tournaments would be completely devastated by that I think and actually um, there's there's tons there's tons for them to be excited about I mean look they've got the Wimbledon finalist Milos Raonic turning up here I mean that's that's pretty great everybody seems very very excited about that there's there's sort of Weirdly, there's almost more hype than usual about Novak Djokovic because of what happened at Wimbledon, because we haven't seen him since, because there is, I suppose, the tiniest question mark over him in the way that there hasn't been for 18 months and more. So that's, that's an exciting narrative. You know, there's plenty going on. There's plenty to look forward to this week the the look the withdrawals are a shame uh, undoubtedly i mean i i heard earlier that there's not a single spanish player in the draw here in toronto which is unbelievable how, how given the depth given the number of spaniards populating the world's top 50 how can that be but uh yeah just a, a sign of the withdrawals that there have been but i i still i still feel like it's going to be a very strong
1: event somehow it's interesting you should say about the the, the attitudes in Toronto it's an event I, I I've done just once uh, six years ago and we, we had a uh, pretty much the ultimate semi-final lineup in that I remember it was the first time that Murray maybe the only time he, he beat Nadal and then Federer back to back in the semis in the final to win the title six years ago Andy Murray and but what I what I remember about the event as much as that is is the drivers at the tournament just they were so happy to to have tennis in town they were they were interested they wanted to talk to everybody i, I remember sharing a, a car with an umpire and they were just they were just interrogating the umpire for stories just they just love the the sport and the fact that the circus comes to town and um i, I, I can well imagine that they, they wouldn't care less frankly the locals about who's playing as long as there's a, there's a good event on but i mean well the, you,
2: you can thank me later david but i'm going to provide you with the best segue in radio now because uh my driver uh, last night picking me up from the airport evo a lovely bulgarian man broke the news to me of Grigor Dimitrov's new coaching relationship with Danny Valverde. He checked that that we were off the record because I, I I told him I was a, a, a tennis a broadcaster. He said, oh, are we off the record. He said, oh, well, I, I he told me he was Bulgarian. I said, oh, you a Dimitrov fan? He said, yes, I picked him up from the airport earlier and he was with Mr. Valverde. So that was how I heard the news from my driver, Evo.
1: But you've just broken that embargo now, have you?
2: Well, I heard that he, he confirmed it in press yesterday. So we're all good.
1: Oh okay. So you just got a bit of a, a sneak preview. Or well, what do you think about that uh that alliance, Grigor Dimitrov and Danny Valverde. What do you think that will lead to?
2: Uh goodness me. I don't know. I I mean it's not it's not making me go, yes, this is the one, this is the person that's gonna turn things around for you, Grigor. Who or you what could... would? Well it's, well that's that's the thing, you know, I'm not gonna Snag off the choice because I don't have an answer I don't know who would I mean I suspect perhaps he needs a Lendl type uh but you know there's only one there's only one Lendl and you know but I'm not sure there are any then <laughs> there are any uh people remotely like Lendl out there uh so uh, I just don't know I mean it's a funny one Valverde because he was sort of you know Andy Murray's friend come hitting partners that he hadn't didn't wasn't really designated as a coach and then he was taken on by uh after splitting with Murray as a coach as the head coach which you know massive promotion I would say and and rumors about that appointment were that Valverde was appointed because he could provide a sort of a main line to ivan lendl you know it was widely reported everybody seemed to to know that lendl that, that burdick had wanted to work with lendl lendl wasn't up for it so he went with Valverde, sort of the next best thing hoping that he could provide a sort of a back road to uh, to ivan lendl because those um, two get on so well well exactly um So, and and then Valverde was then with Del Potro at Wimbledon. That was never announced as a formal thing, but they were definitely on the practice court together a lot of the time, uh, from what I could see. Um, So it's, I mean, it's a bit like, you know, I I suppose that's how it happens. You know, Yapstam was assistant coach at Ajax and now he's head coach at Reading. But then Yapstam had a, had a, very distinguished playing career, which, with all due respect, Danny Valverde didn't. So, I mean, it's a big job, is what I'm saying. It's a big, big job. But then, coaching Thomas Burdick was a big job, and and for a while there, it went really well. It didn't <laughs> didn't end very well. Um, I, I just, I mean, I, I think this is, with the exception possibly of Kyrgios, the the toughest coaching gig in tennis, uh, and. I don't know that it's the wrong appointment. I'm certainly not going to be so bold as to say that, but it's certainly not an appointment which made me think, yes, Gregor, this this is going to turn things around for you.
1: Uh, Side note, how have I missed that Yap Stam is the coach of Reading?
2: We've all been blindsided by the news, David. Yeah, get used to it. It's a brave new world.
1: This is absolutely news to me. Anyway, uh, I, I, breaking news on the tennis podcast, but only for me, apparently. Um, anyway, uh, just a, a note as well. I noticed that uh, Grigor Dimitrov and one. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life, and of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. Martin Del Potro are both represented by the same agent. So perhaps that's a reason that the, the Valverde uh, contact was made. They're, they're both co- both... Uh, managed by uh, Tony Godsick, who lo- also looks after uh, Roger Federer. So, uh, so th- that's how these things often tend to happen. Um, just a note as well. I mean, Catherine, just just on the on the Toronto thing. I mean, really, it is that draw is a little. <laughs> Bare compared to to what it would normally be. I mean, I think the cut off with the rankings is is eighty nine in the world, uh, which is for for an, a fifty six draw, which has got wild cards and qualifiers is is unusually. I mean, it, it would never be anything like that normally because others, pretty much everybody, plays that event normally. So that's what the Olympics has done to it. But we look forward to it. We'll see how it uh, unfolds, and we will uh, report on it in our next show, of course. Now, Catherine, just before we get on to talking about various other issues in the sport or other talking points. We should touch on the IOC decision today, which has basically given Russia T- tennis players, uh, a bit of a reprieve, certainly in terms of uh, in Russian athletes in general, by giving the power to the the federation of the sport concerned to to make their own recommendation as to whether they can play in the Olympics or not. That's been given to the ITF, and the ITF have ruled that the seven players chosen to represent Russia have all been sufficiently tested over the last few years and as such they're quite happy for them to play in the Olympics so sighs of relief all round. I noticed that uh, Svetlana Kuznetsova was very quick to to go on Twitter today and and just clearly voice how how excited she's going to be about it and it's an interesting one isn't it because you you feel I certainly feel on one level that a stand needs to be taken but at the same time the collateral damage of denying players that have have apparently done zero wrong should not be the case either so it's it it feels a bit a bit unsatisfactory all round but for those particular players I'm I'm pleased.
2: Yeah, I'm pleased for the players but, but is it, I agree it's a really really tricky one personally although it wouldn't be a satisfactory solution either. Personally, I would prefer the zero tolerant, tolerance approach. I think where federations are implicated in the way that that, that Russian, the, well, I mean the Russian sporting ministry has been. I mean, yes, I know the report was only into uh, the Winter Olympics in Sochi, and there is absolutely no suggestion that it extends to to tennis in any way. I'm not talking about tennis. I just think, you know, once it gets to that stage and federations and ministries are implicated, personally, I think that an incredibly strong zero-tolerance message needs to be sent. And yes, that would unfairly punish some individual athletes, a lot of them tennis players, but... I mean I suppose it's very easy for me to say and I completely understand why Atlanta. because Netzeva for one would disagree for me that would be a price worth paying because the stakes you know the integrity of sport in general the stakes are just so high but for the individuals um, I think it's good I, you know I, I complete I read the ITF statement I completely understand that they have confidence in um, the uh, testing system which exists in tennis so there's no reason uh, to doubt the integrity of those individuals so uh, either solution would be unsatisfactory this one is better for individuals but for me in the overall picture sits slightly less easily but you know it's not like if the decision had gone the other way I'd be rejoicing Um, it's just a it's an unhappy situation which has no easy answers
1: No, indeed. So, other talking points today here on the Tennis Podcast. Uh, Goran Ivanovic and Marin Cilic are no more as a coaching partnership, Catherine Whitaker. I don't know about you, but I know we had Goran Ivanovic as as a guest, as an interviewee. uh, I think basically his only interview straight after um, Cilic lost to Federer after being two sets up at Wimbledon. And we know how defeated he sounded how desperately upset and disappointed he was Goran but this one took us by surprise certainly certainly me by surprise
2: yeah it really took me by surprise as well I mean no doubt there's a there's a story there whether we'll ever hear it I I don't know um I mean (laughs) we know Goran we know he's such a unique and complex character there could be any number of explanations any number of reasons why this has come to pass. I'm sure it has a lot to do with Chilich as well, where the balance lies of who it has more to do with. I don't know. I'm quite sure there's there's more of a story to it. I just, I can't even speculate about what that might be, sadly, because it could be any, it could be a million things, knowing <laughs> knowing, knowing Goran the way we do. And, and it's, it's a shame, I think. And things, it, I mean, yes, he lost that match to Federer. But you know things let's face it, we're going really really well. I mean, the kind of tennis he was playing, I don't see how Goran could not have been happy with that, and Chilich could not have been happy about how he was playing and and just generally the policy and the tactics and and the way things were going seemed to be in an upward curve, you know back towards summer twenty fourteen form, so in that respect, it's. It's a surprise, you know, whether it has something to do with scheduling, you know, all these super coaching relationships do at some point seem to hit a slightly sticky wicket with regards to scheduling and Goran, like, well, again, almost all the other super coaches has a lot of irons in the fire. He has a lot of his own personal commitments. So whether that's a factor or not, I don't know. Certainly could be, but, you know, I just... I'm I'm sorry, listeners, I've got nothing... No inside scoop to add, because I just don't know. It, it's a weird one.
1: Well, up your game, Catherine uh, I, I Well, I, I had a little exchange with Goran uh, in which I tried to get some sort of information out of him, and uh, he just did a series of emojis, which, frankly, I didn't understand. So um, I, I'm none the wiser, but there we are. Um, so I, I, what I would say, Catherine, looking at their their record together, I, I, I think it, it was... Overall, I mean, it was a resounding success, wasn't it? I'll I'll never forget that interview we did with Tim Hemman at the end of uh, 2014, in which I I offered Tim Hemman a swap of careers with Marion Cilic, given that Tim had been top five in the world and reached all these semifinals. And I said, would you change for Marion's one Grand Slam? And he said, in a heartbeat. And I think that that is... Yet again, Goran Ivanovic having a big impact on <laughs> on Tim Hemman, but certainly on uh, on on Marin Cilic, and um, and you know he's shown what he can do. Whether I wonder whether we'll ever see Goran the coach again. I mean, the the thing for me is that I think it would take a certain kind of player for him to want to coach, but at the same time, I can't really imagine Goran Ivanovic not on the circuit now because he just seems to have enjoyed it so much over the last three years.
2: Yeah that's the thing he is absolutely I described him as a pig in muck didn't I being back on tour I mean he's just loved being back on tour but then with Marin Cilic I don't he didn't go out there you know like it sounds like Richard Krejcik did saying I want to be a coach who wants me it was you know then he'd known Marin Cilic since he was 12 years old you know I think it was he that took him to Bob Brett and said, "Look at this guy," or you know something along those lines. It it was it was very much about Marin chillich rather than a rather than about Goran being desperate to coach. I think he's loved it basically, um, and I'm quite sure he'll miss being on the tour. But uh, I think it's going to have to be a very um, a unique mesh of personalities if he is to find another. Another person to work with, but then having said that, as much as he does have that bond with Marin Cilic, they are not similar people, are they? I mean, we, you know, we don't know Marin Cilic like we know Goran, but they certainly don't strike me as similar characters at all.
1: No, not in any way. I mean, go- Marin is Marin is a pretty quiet, softly spoken, very nice fella, but but not this sort of extrovert and character that, that Goran is. But. Still, they meshed as a as a combination, and and yeah, I think it's a bit of a shame, but there we are. Um, maybe we'll find out why eventually. Now, we were talking about Dimitrov earlier. He didn't last long in Washington, Catherine. He lost to his first match basically. Um, lasted to his first match and lost it against Dan Evans of Great Britain, who's now um, in the seventies in the world and and had two fantastic wins in a row against Benjamin Becker and then against. Uh, Dimitrov both in straight sets before eventually getting knocked out by Jack Sock. But isn't it interesting having talked about Johanna Konta on a sort of on a lesser scale, we're seeing the same we, we talked about Kyle Edmund last week, now we're talking about Dan Evans. These are British players who are now tour players and really there is no reason why they shouldn't continue as tour players and it's just I mean from a British standpoint it is something we've been sadly lacking for for basically my, the majority of my life. Certainly, in the time that I've been involved in tennis, that aside from Tim Hemman and Greg zedski and and uh, Anke Otharung and Elena Baltacha and uh, and and then Andy Murray, it, it's 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 just not really happened. Heather Watson's managed to do it, but to, to have this group of players that are just on the circuit week in week out. I mean, it's it's what the country's been crying out for.
2: I remember this feeling when Anne Kiothevong and Elena Baltacha, at very similar times in their careers, suddenly made that incredible run and both got into the world's top 50. We'd been so used to seeing them get wild cards at Wimbledon, occasionally pop up in qualifying or qual- qualify somewhere else in the world. And that basically being what we see of them throughout the year and the rest of the time, them being out there uh, on the ITF circuit. And then suddenly they made the, these incredible runs into the top 50 and they were getting in main draws everywhere and they were just, as you say, tour players. And it was... I mean, it was just such a... It it felt such a bonus and a surprise just to see them, you know, in main tour, main draw events. And that's what we've got now. And it does feel really unusual for Brits. Non-Brit's listening to this podcast are probably thinking, what, what are you talking about? But it really, really is unusual, you know. I always... My dad and I always used to say Tim Henman would have been a brilliant British number two, you know, uh, uh, perhaps being a bit of a disservice, disservice. He got to number four in the world. But, you know, he didn't deserve all that pressure of being, you know, all the expectation that he had was only because we didn't have anyone else at the time. <laughs> you know, it was all on him. Yes, there was Greg. But in terms of right there at the top, that's the only reason he had all of that pressure. You know, he was a fantastic consistent tour player and that takes a hell of a lot to be a fantastic consistent tour player and yeah I mean Dan Evans doesn't have the consistent yet but he's got the tour bit so just stick at it Dan and uh, yeah it's great to see him there and he really looks like he belongs doesn't he I mean seeing him against Dimitrov was amazing He, he just he completely belonged. It was such aggressive tennis, wasn't it? He just... He was bossing it. He he was owning the court like, you know, like he'd been there all his life.
1: Like proper players do at that level. I mean, there, there was none of this sort of, oh, isn't this nice? And I'll put, play my little game and, you know, perform creditably and then leave. No, he just... He stood up and he took him on and he took him out. So... um uh, I'd I'd love to see him do more of that because I I enjoy watching him play and um and yeah good good for him let's see what he what he does next now Catherine last couple of things this is what you've been waiting for isn't it Catherine we're gonna have pole vault you can't wait can you are we gonna have pole vault
2: though what do you mean are we what do you
1: uh, mean,
2: I mean uh, as it has not been ratified as an official podcast segment i i actually have my own new podcast segment to introduce if uh, if that's how things roll now david
1: no not not interested in that i mean poll no, vault is yeah, is no organic, i'd like
2: I'd like, you, I'd like you to hear about it in fact i have to give a bit of credit to someone called philip who emailed me this week to make this suggestion Many, many thanks, Philip, because it's one of the best emails I've ever received. Philip, don't listen anymore. We're not interested. He suggested I introduce my own new segment called "Drumroll, please." Pole axed, which is just simply the removal of the pole vault segment from the show.
1: No, we're not having that.
2: It's happened. Just happened.
1: No, no. Right, pole vault, everybody. Pole vault. Pole axed. You know more. You are Polaxed and uh, pole vault. Let's do that because, um, well, I'm, I'm just uh, Philip. Philip, go away. All right. Honestly, you know, you try to come up with a good segment. You come up with a good name. Pole yeah, vault. And someone so... comes
2: up with a better segment. That's just. That's just. Yeah, but where's wrong.
1: it going, Catherine? Where's it going, Polaxed? Hey, it's not going anywhere, is it? See, there's no, there's no future to it. It has, you know, if you if you in, invoke poll axed, it gets rid of my perfectly good segment, and then there's nothing left. What's next? Tennis podcast
2: axed? There's just a normal podcast without any polls. That's what you're left with, which is, which is just fine, David. It's just fine.
1: All right, fine. Okay. Well, we won't have any pole vault then. Brilliant. Ah, oh, sorry, everybody. I know you're all really looking forward to that, but um, Catherine's poll axed it. Um, so let's do uh, live tennis, live score tennis stories. hashtag Live Score Tennis Stories, which is something that I put out on Twitter. Am I allowed to have that? Yeah, go on then. Okay, right. So this was this was um, born of the uh, the realization that I was ha- I was watching Dan Evans' match or following Dan Evans' match against Jack Sock exclusively on live scores because there was no television coverage whatsoever, and um, and it, it got me thinking as as the scores were just sort of ticking over, and I'm I'm basically trying to imagine what's happening based on 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 the, the live scores ticking over. The matches that you have witnessed, or that one has witnessed, when only uh, having live scores available. So I put this out on Twitter, got some absolute corkers in. James Martin had to follow the 2008 Wimbledon final. Yes, that one, he says. Uh, This is the men's final between Nadal and Federer, the greatest match of all time. I only had the live scores available at work. My wife commentated the last few games on the phone for me. It was so painful. I might imagine that.
2: Yeah, well, uh, am I allowed to... Inter- My one was I uh, followed Nadal Soderling uh, in live scores uh, because I hadn't planned to be in for it because I just, I just thought, you know, it was going to be a routine victory for Rafael Nadal. Had I known what happened, I would have cancelled whatever it was I was doing that day, which wasn't particularly important or exciting uh but in the end it prevented me from watching it and I, I've referenced it before on the podcast that I, I thought there was a, a mistake with the uh I, th- I think it was a website rather than an app I thought there was a mistake and they they were getting the scores wrong and they, they were writing them the wrong way around mm-hmm. uh and this was before Twitter so I couldn't sort of check Twitter to see whether you know hashtag sodling was trending or something uh and uh, it was it was extraordinary. It was extraordinary, the, real, the moment of realisation that, oh no, they haven't got this wrong, this is actually what's happening and I'm missing it for something neither important nor exciting.
1: Uh, I, I, my main one is the 2001 match between uh, Federer and Henman at Wimbledon just after uh, uh, Federer beaten Sampras in the fourth round at Wimbledon and, and, and I had to follow the whole tournament basically on live scores and and it was at that point that I discovered BBC Radio 5 Live uh, through the internet uh, while I was in Germany. Uh, not that I didn't know what, what 5 Live sounded like but it was the first time I'd heard it through the internet overseas like that and... Um, and and but most so most of the tournaments I was following it on live scores and and watching these enormous moments in in. The context of Wimbledon, just, just via that medium, is 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 very strange indeed. Uh, we've got one here from Life is Like Tennis, who says, uh, The Fanini-Nadal US Open 2015 match springs to mind. I was working in a call centre and aud- audibly shrieked, and I won't say this a swear word, over the phone with a customer <laughs> whilst watching live scoring, which I pers- personally enjoy. Political Rat, who says... Uh, I was at a conference dinner trying to hide my agony while following live scores of Federer losing to Monfils in Monte Carlo in 2015. Um, We've got... uh uh, Sarah Garvey, who says Kerber against Doy in the Australian Open first round. Don't forget that was when Doy had a, a match point against Kerber and Kerber went on to win the whole title. Uh, I was at university and just staring at my phone. I wasn't even writing anything down in my lessons. This is the problem. You know, it's just so intoxicating in the live scores. Uh, Craig Anderson was at a friend's wedding during the 2013 Miami final and spent three hours staring at his phone. Didn't go down too well, he says, with a, an emoji wearing sunglasses. Is um, that the
2: Murray Fer- Ferrer one?
1: That's the one, yes, oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was um, an ordeal. And, uh- uh, well, we'll we'll have just just one more from, and there's loads of them here. In fact, we might have to have a couple more of these. Uh, Belez Mortals says, uh, Cincinnati 2014, Ferrer Kohlschreiber on a non-televised court. Ferrer won 6-7, 7-6, 7-6, and I lost 10 years of my life. Uh, CC Smooth says, Venus against Kvitova, at Wimbledon 2014. I couldn't watch because I was in a workshop, so I score-watched. I was a wreck. And then I was sick. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I, I love live scores. So that's what we have for you, um, uh, live scores wise. Uh, now, Catherine, I know you didn't really want to poleaxe pole vault. So uh, just, just, just one quick one, just one quick just, one before I've just we thought, go. I've
2: just thought of another one. Hang on. I've just thought of another one. A really, really dated one. It's not quite... Well, it is live scoring, I suppose. My dad, and I, my dad and I... Well, I can't actually remember the year. It would have been very early naughties. Maybe you can get the year from who was in the match. I watched my dad and I in... I think it was Dixon's uh, in Reading. That's an electrical watched... shop, everybody, uh, if you're not in, from the UK. <laughs> we watched Henman and Hewitt in, I think, the Indian Wells final... In a Dixons on (laughs) CFAX.
1: That is a corker. Uh, (laughs) So, uh, we're not going to let her interrupt Paul Vault anymore. It is back. And um, I asked on Twitter, what about Johanna Conter for the WTA finals in Singapore? Will she make it? Will she not make it? Catherine Whitaker. What do you think? Top eight get there. And uh, we know that Victoria Azarenka, well, she's not going to be there. So um, chances chances are there for, for Johanna Konta. Will she make it or not?
2: I think she will get there as an alternate. I think she will go as an alternate and possibly end up playing because alternates, usually the first alternate ends up playing at some point. I, th- I think she'll finish ninth or tenth and go as an alternate.
1: I think she'll get there, and uh, equally split are our listeners because we had hundreds of of people voting in Poll Vault because it's such a popular feature. And the the verdict was fifty fifty, Catherine Whitaker. So it is really, really close, as you can see in terms of people's opinions. Uh, so it's going to be fascinating to see how she gets on over the next uh, a few weeks and months to come. Um, but. A great win. A great win for, for Johanna Conter today over Venus Williams. Catherine, I think you better get to bed. You're jet-lagged in Toronto. You've got a big week ahead. Uh, I'm sitting here at one thirty-five in the morning. What am I doing? Uh, but that's what we, what we have for you in terms of devotion to our tennis podcast listeners. And... Um, I'm not sure I will be back next week, actually. I I think it might be David Loraxed. But I'm also going to have a bit of a break for a week. Uh, Catherine Whitaker will endeavour to try to get you a tennis podcast next week. If not, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. But for now, thanks for listening. We'll speak to you soon.
0: Hi.